Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Dress the History of Fashion as a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, I'm sure you heard <laughs> international singing sensation Beyonce recently sent the hearts of her millions of fans around the world a flutter when she announced the launch of a new hair care line debuting this month, February 2024 adding her name to a long list of high-profile celebrity figures to enter the booming multi-billion dollar industries of beauty, hair, and skincare. And this is an industry, or industries it must be said, that exist in no small part thanks to the subject of today's podcast. And in honor of Black History Month, we can think of no better person to highlight than the groundbreaking entrepreneur, philanthropist, and activist, Madam C.J. Walker, one of the most successful and wealthiest self-made women in early 20th century America. At a time when women were still fighting for the right to vote and Black men and women for equality under Jim Crow era violence and segregation, Madam C.J. Walker defied oppression and opposition to build an international Black hair care empire founded on the principles of community support and uplift. Determined to make life better for herself and her daughter, she transformed herself from a launderer making $1.50 a day to the woman Guinness World Records identifies as the first self-made American woman millionaire. And by doing so, she also laid a blueprint for the modern cosmetics and hair care industries that we are indebted to to this very day. And as she once said, she did it all on her own ground, which also just happens to be the title of the first and definitive biography of her life on her own ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, written by Madam Walker's great-great-granddaughter, Alilia Bundles, who we are so pleased to welcome as today's guest. Alilia, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Alilia, welcome to Dressed. I cannot tell you how excited I am to talk to you today. Oh, delighted to be here. 
fashion is something that's very much on my mind as I write about the women in my family. Yes. And we're going to talk all about it today because this is such an extraordinary and incredible story we are going to share with our listeners today. But first, I want to hear about your journey to writing this book, because in some ways, it's been a little bit of a lifelong calling. It has. And I would tell you that the last thing I thought I'd be doing at this stage in my life is really devoting so much time to telling the story. But it's such an important story. But when I was growing up, uh, my mom was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. My dad was president of another hair care company. But my passion was writing. And so they encouraged me to do what I love, not to go into the family business. Um, But it turns out that my training as a journalist really prepared me to be able to tell the story. And when I was a really little girl, still a toddler, I was going through my grandmother's dresser in uh, the apartment where she had lived. She had died by that point. My mother was there visiting her father, and I was going through my grandmother's dresser. And I found things that had belonged to Madam C.J. Walker, to Alelia Walker, and to my grandmother, May an ostrich feather fan, mother of pearl opera glasses, uh, shawls, beautiful shawls that were made of beads. So I was in some ways connecting with them and their fashion even before I could read or knew who they were. Incredible, incredible. And so many of us have, I feel like, those early origin stories or earliest memories of their first encounter with dress. And I think it's really special and we'll come full circle maybe at the, towards the end of this podcast about how you start to research and learn more about those objects as you learn more about your family. So I have to say that the seismic amount of research you did for this book <laughs> is incredible. Two decades of research that you did. You have an impressive 90 plus pages of endnotes at the back of the book, which I mean, if anyone who's written a book, that's just an incredible amount of work. And it represents you researching everywhere from revered academic institutions to finding things like you just described in like a large steamer trunk in your grandfather's apartment. Can you tell us a little bit about your research process and your archive? So, you know, one could say that I'm compulsive. (laughs) About those end notes. And I really, I think as a journalist and as a person who was writing about someone who wasn't very well known, I wanted to make sure that I was documenting everything. I also wanted to make sure that I was leaving breadcrumbs for people who would write about Madam Walker going forward, since this really was the first major biography. I also had a really good friend who had been accused of plagiarism. So I wanted to make sure <laughs> that I was very, very yes, careful thorough. <laughs> about citing my sources. So that again, some of it is compulsive. Um, but I just I really think it's important when you're writing that very first biography of somebody to make sure that you are putting all of the facts in, in front of them. Uh, but the process was this. I mean, when I was Uh, A little girl, as I discovered some of these items that had belonged to them, that was my first exposure. I'm also fortunate that my grandfather, who was married to Madam Walker's great-granddaughter, had been an attorney. He graduated from Lincoln University in uh, about 1912. Then he went to law school in Pittsburgh. And he was a great storyteller, and he also 
kept a lot of his family records, everything from free papers of wow. his, one of his great grandmothers to um, diplomas to textbooks that his father had had as a student at Lincoln University in the 1880s. So I come from a family that really pays attention to books and and reading and, and documents. So though I had that foundation. And then as a journalist, I really like to, you know, cite things, to have the facts. And so I continue to build on that. As I was starting my research about Madam Walker, I'm really fortunate that her attorney and the managers of her company kept her letters. So we literally have 40,000 documents that have now been digitized that are at the Indiana Historical Society. That was a great foundation for me as a jumping off point. But then I had to supplement it because the first 35 years of Madam Walker's life, she was a poor, uneducated woman. She was a washerwoman until she was in her late 30s. And so I had to fill in those blanks with the kind of atmospherics and context. And it meant Go this and listen. I have to tell you, this is before the internet. This is before <laughs> things were digitized. So if I wanted to read the Chicago Defender, I would have to go to Chicago and to the public library and look through newspapers or look through microfilm. I went to St. Louis and looked through city directories. Those are you know those don't even we don't even have the yellow pages anymore. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was how. People sold things to people. And so I found her brothers listed in the city directories in St. Louis in the 1880s and early 1890s. So it was really totally that level, that granular level of doing research. Something that was very critical for me, very pivotal. In the, uh, I had written my master's paper at Columbia on Madam Walker because my advisor, Phyllis Garland, the only black woman on the faculty recognized my name, Alelia, and realized there was a connection to Madam Walker and said, that's what you're going to write your paper about, not the trite, boring things that you're suggesting to me. So I did that. I had had that kind of under my belt. And then a few years later, Alex Haley approached us. And Alex was still riding high on the success of Roots. And he wanted to write about Madam Walker. And we had dinner and he said he was going to hire researchers. I said, hey, I I know this story. I think I should be that, <laughs> that person. And so I embarked on this research for him. And it was trying to pull together all of that material for him. And he gave me this really helpful hint. He said, make a folder for every year of her life. And as you have a note or you see an article, drop it in that folder. Well, now I actually have two rooms full of folders. <laughs> and if I were doing it, if I were doing it today, if I were starting today, everything would be digitized and my house would not be so cluttered. But then, but when I started this many decades ago, everything was about paper and it was keeping the records. So, you know, the journey is I started when I first discovered things in the dresser drawer. Then I followed, went to my mom's office and then I wanted to be a writer and I started collecting material about these women. And now these many decades later, I am finishing my fifth book about them. 
Absolutely incredible. And I also want to say too, and you've mentioned it a little bit already, is that you've done all this incredible research where you're traversing the country and and looking at microfilm, but you're also looking into those personal family archives. And you have that throughout the book, especially in these wonderful photographs, starting with Madam C.J. Walker, and then coming up into the present day, which is just such so, so lovely in and of itself to be able to not only you know, research about her, but also share these wonderful images of her and her family, which of course includes you. And I also do just want to say a note, dress listeners, that the 90 pages of notes should in no way deter you from reading this book. There are not, you know, they're not little note numbers throughout the book. It's just there at the end if you want to to reference it. It has academic level scholarship, but it's in no way a dry academic read. This is an exemplar of beautiful, beautiful storytelling. And from the beginning of the book, you do this incredibly thorough job of painting a picture of not just Walker's life, but her greater surroundings and this world that she and other Black men and women are navigating. You paint these incredibly vivid pictures of not just people, but places, businesses lining city streets, the geography of the city she lives in, the important events that are happening. Why was this sort of context important to your narrative storytelling? I did want to create that. And thank you so much. That means a lot to me that you do that you did get that feeling um, of what was going on. There were two key reasons. One is that there wasn't a lot of documentation about her life. And so I had to create context so people would understand it. The other part is that we don't learn these stories in school. I mean, now it's better. We're getting more women's history, more black history, more history of people of color. But when I was growing up that, you know, we were not mentioned at all in these books. And so it is trying to, in some ways, give people a a history lesson about all of the amazing things that were going on, because it's a little unbelievable if you're encountering this for the first time. Right. And the incredible thing about Madam C.J. Walker, right, is she's not just you know, you're not just contextualizing her within this period. She is part of this period. She's a very central and important figure in a lot of these events you describe. And we'll talk more about that in a, in a minute. But first, we are, of course, here to discuss the extraordinary life and legacy of your great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker, a daughter of enslaved people who, through remarkable will, fortitude, and vision, built an international beauty empire in the early 20th century which is no easy task for anyone, much less someone, as the book tells us, was born Sarah Breedlove, quote, the daughter of enslaved people, orphaned at seven, married at 14, and widowed at 20. Can you tell us about Walker's life before she was Madame, starting with when and where she was born? She was born in Delta, Louisiana, on a plantation along the Mississippi River, the same plantation where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. It had been a very wealthy area prior to the Civil War because it was such a rich cotton growing area. Uh, That meant 90 percent of the uh, residents were enslaved people. Uh, And then after the war, that meant that that turned into political power, that those numbers turned into political power. So she saw during Reconstruction as a little girl what it meant for African-Americans to have political power. But her parents died when she was seven. Her older brothers and her family minister who, you know, had some political activity were really chased out of 
Delta, Louisiana. So by the time she was 10, her brothers were gone. She married at 14, she said, to get a home of her own because she was living with her sister and cruel brother-in-law. Married a man named Moses McWilliams, had her one child, Lelia, and then Moses died when she was 20. So she moved from that area to St. Louis where her brothers had gone uh, a decade earlier when she was 20 years old. And she heads north to join her family, as you just said, in St. Louis. And this is in 1889. And she supports her daughter as a laundress. Kind of the only job available. You know, know, at that point, 90% of African-Americans lived in the rural South. And, you know, and America was still quite rural at that point. People moving to the cities and, you know, women did not necessarily work outside of the home and black many black women did have to work but the you know the only jobs that were available to them were uh as maids and cooks and and laundresses you know the newspaper articles from that era actually say you know jobs for women jobs for for men jobs for white people jobs for colored people i mean it was really that stark And I took note of some of the statistics that you cite, which is 65% of the nation's washerwomen at the turn of the century were Black women. And whereas only 3% of married white women were employed, 26% of Black women were were working outside of the home. And Sarah is one of these women. She's making, I think, $1.50 a day in St. Louis. And she's really determined to change her circumstances. Can you talk about what those circumstances were that led to Sarah becoming Madam C.J. Walker, the budding hair culturist behind Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower? And these two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Well, you know, yes, she was struggling. I mean, her brothers were barbers, and that meant they had a little more status than the average um, Black man in St. Louis. But she was a struggling widow. And she married a man that turned out not to be a very good marriage. But the saving grace for her was joining St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. She had a good enough voice to be in the choir. She was in the missionary society. So that meant some of the more educated women in the church saw kind of a diamond in the rough, and they really embraced her. They saw that she wanted to uh, improve her life. And so they began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. And, you know, where fashion kind of comes into the equation at this point, when you think, yes, she was a washerwoman, that meant her clothes were cleaned and starched and ironed, but they were, you know, tattered. She didn't have a lot of options, but she could aspire to what those other more well-dressed women, more educated women, more polished women were. And so she began to see a path to something different. And she also personally struggles with scalp disease and baldness at this time. And what does she do to kind of start to combat that? Or how does she come up with her wonderful hair grower product? So, you know, we take for granted now the that we can turn on the faucet or jump in the shower in the morning. But right. in the in the late 1800s, most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing, didn't have toilets. So, you know, those things that we now think, OK, how did they live? Well, it meant hygiene was very different. And one of the results of that is that people didn't wash their hair very often because it was too difficult and challenging to do, especially in the winter. And they had really bad not just dandruff, but scalp disease. So she was one of those people and struggling because her brothers were barbers. She learned some things from them. There were other products already on the market. Cuticura has been around for a very long time. 
uh, but she couldn't necessarily afford those. And then so she went to work selling products for another woman, Annie Malone, who had started a company in St. Louis. She sold her products for a while, moved to Denver, uh, and then sold Malone's products. And But she was working as a cook for a pharmacist in Denver. And he talked with her about how she could make her own formula, what she could put other ingredients in. So she was a combination of her brother's of selling products for another woman, of learning something from the pharmacist, and then having the courage and the vision to start her own company, especially after her friend Charles Joseph Walker, a newspaper salesman, moved from Denver to St. Louis. Then she became Madam C.J. Walker, the manufacturer of Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. Yeah, and she is incredibly adept at marketing, it has to be said. And she adopts, as you write in the book, a title long used by modistes and hairdressers because she wanted to signal that she and her clients were of the highest quality. And this is from very early on. She really understands that she herself is a walking advertisement for her products. And her products worked, which I thought was really interesting because you dig into, you tell us what her ingredients are, and then you kind of dig into what something you already talked about is it's the success of her product is a combination of these natural ingredients, but also, again, the fact that she's inspiring women to institute hygiene practices consistently hygiene practices that they might not have otherwise been doing up to this point. Yeah, it's so important because a lot of times people just associate her with hair styling, but she was really concerned about healthy scalps. I mean, that's and that makes a huge difference. Now we today we the some of the things that she used, sulfur was one of the ingredients, uh petrolatum, which is essentially Vaseline. And so now we know we in our products and our cosmetics and hair care products, we don't use petroleum or sulfate. Sulfate-free is like the way to go. But that then, more than 100 years ago, that was revolutionary. That was better than what had been used before, like lye and other kinds of things. But she saw that having healthy hair, healthy scalps, meant that your hair would grow and that you would have your, your crowning glory. So that was very important to her. And the marketing and selling herself was critical. It's just amazing to me, and I have no idea how she thought of this, but that she put her own photograph on her products. That was amazing for a Black woman at a time when nobody else is saying Black is beautiful to her. Nobody else is telling her that she's beautiful, but she puts her own image with her newly grown mane of hair on that product container. Yeah, and it was incredibly effective, right? I mean, to say that she enjoys incredible success very quickly is an understatement. I mean, she saw a need and she fills it, pairing it with this incredible sense for business, marketing, and an unwavering drive and determination to spread her product across the United States. She creates this national demand for her product within, I think, something like two years, and the business just continues to grow. You write, in 1909, her earnings were 8782 which is just over 150000 in today's dollars. I mean, she's she's gone from $1.50 a day to $150,000 a year in product. By 1910, she's doing $800,000 in annual sales. 
Can you talk about her business model and her philosophy and a little bit about what sets her apart from her competitors like Annie? So I think that she learned some of that collaboration and organization from watching those women at St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. A number of them were involved in a national organization called the National Association of Colored Women. They were involved in the suffrage movement. They had been excluded from the white suffragists, and they created their own organization. But they took that to another level. They created kindergartens. They created orphanages. And so she saw what these women were doing. Their motto was lifting as we climb. So that, uh, you know, seeing that model of women working together was a model that she used as she began to organize her agents. She had traveled all over the United States, Central America, and the Caribbean by 1913. Her first convention was 1917. So she had that model of organization. I think that what I began to understand that over a period of time, as she's selling these products, they're working, women are you know, making money, able to buy homes for their children, contribute to charity, that she, be- I think, began to see the products and the sales of the products as a means to a greater end. She realized that the women needed economic independence, but they really craved education. They craved uh, independence. And so that was the, the message that she was giving to them. Yes, sell these products. They work. They make you feel better. They make you look better. But you can use that money and those resources to make a difference in your community. In fact, she said at her 1917 convention in her keynote, I want you to understand that as Walker agents, your first duty is to humanity. I want others to look at us and realize that we care not just about ourselves, but about others. She gave prizes not just to the women who sold the most products, but also to the women who contributed the most to charity. So there was a greater goal for her. Yes, sell the products. Yes, make money, but make a difference. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But first, I want you to talk a little bit more about those agents that she's training. Because I was, um, I immediately thought of Avon or Mary Kay, right, that business model. And I was really surprised to learn in your book that Avon, that business model for Avon had been around since the 19th century. But can you talk about how she's finding and training these agents? Because this is part and parcel to her success, right? Everywhere she goes, she's leaving more and more women selling her products, right? It's a really remarkable business model. Madam Walker understood that women needed to work together. And the church, again, was a key part of what she was doing. As she was traveling, she and C.J. Walker traveling together uh, for a few years, each town they would go to, she would actually take out an ad in the newspaper. I'm stunned that I can look back now, 1906, 1907, now that some, so many newspapers are digitized. I'm like, wow, she was already advertising in papers. And it might just be a little one-inch ad. Madam C.J. Walker is coming to town. So as she traveled throughout the Southwest and Southern states, she'd take out an ad a few days before she was to arrive in a town. She would book space at a church. She'd talk at the church, talk, talk about what she was doing. And then after she had given her speech about all of the interesting things that were going on, not just with her company, but with Black people in general, she would meet with a smaller group of women, maybe in the church basement. And she, maybe eight women, eight to 10 women. 
and she would demonstrate her Walker's hair system. And she would see who asked the best questions, who seemed the most engaged, who did the other women gravitate towards? And she would make that person her lead agent for the town. And she continued to do that city after city so that by the time she had her first national convention in 1917, she had built a network of leaders and a network of sales agents. And I have to say, too, despite her success, it was not always an easy road for Madam Walker. By nature of her profession, she has to fight for recognition and validation among her peers. And can you talk a little bit about some of the struggles she faced and how she overcame them? Because this is such an incredible story um, in so many ways because of the battle she fights and overcomes. Her resilience is stunning to me. I mean, I, I really am amazed as as I think deeply about what she was doing, because this is a person who had very little formal education when she started. Um, She had been in an abusive relationship. She was not, you know, she didn't have, because she didn't have a lot of education, she wasn't considered middle class when she started out. And so many people dismissed her. Famously, Booker T. Washington dismissed her. But she realized that she needed to make some improvements. And so as she began to be successful, she was very smart about the people she surrounded herself with. Her, The manager of her factory was a woman named Alice Kelly, who had been the dean of girls at a private boarding school, a black boarding school in Kentucky. Now, Alice Kelly was living her best life, but Madam Walker persuaded her to come work for her as her factory manager, but also really as her personal tutor, so that she could help her improve her grammar, so that she could make sure that her presentation when she was making speeches was better. So she was always looking for ways to improve herself, to make up for that deficit uh, in education. One of her secretaries, who was still working for the company when I was growing up and who was my neighbor, in the Amazing. 1960s and 70s, <laughs> had started working for Madam Walker when she was a teenager in like 1915, 1916. And she told me many stories. And one of them is that Madam Walker traveled a lot. But when she was in Indianapolis in the office, of course, all of the office girls would gather around her. They wanted to hear her stories. And they would read the newspaper together in the morning. And if somebody didn't understand a word, they would go look it up in the dictionary. There was a dictionary on the shelf. So she wanted to not just educate herself. She wanted to educate those around her. That was a really key part, I think, of her success. Part of the reason I think that she is more remembered than some of her contemporaries is that she was a a master marketer. (laughs) She empathized with the women who were her customers. She wanted to lift them up. And then another key is that her daughter, Alelia Walker, had been running the Pittsburgh office after Madam Walker moved to Indianapolis. And Alelia's territory was New York, Harlem. And she persuaded her mother that they needed to have a presence in Harlem just as Harlem was becoming the mecca for Black politics and culture. So at her daughter's persuasion, they bought a building in Harlem. And that building was a fabulous salon. 
And I think being in New York gave them a platform that meant they were in the spotlight in a way that their competitors were not. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about Harlem because you do paint, again, an incredibly vivid picture of the rise of Harlem, right? Where so, so many of us are familiar with the Harlem Renaissance, but you paint a picture of how it became Harlem, this mecca of Black cultural life. But first, I want to go back to Booker T. Washington because you talked about him briefly as dismissing her. And this is one of my favorite narrative threads of the book because it really just speaks to her tenacity and her will and her confidence that what she was doing needed to be seen. Getting the support of Booker T. Washington and his peers meant that she could continue to expand and grow her cultural uplift, right? The work that she's trying to do. But he initially dismissed her. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and how she finally got him to see her and support her? So Booker T. Washington Uh, at the turn of the last century was really the most powerful Black man in America. He had uh, was the head of Tuskegee Institute. He had become friendly with a lot of very wealthy white philanthropists and businessmen. He visited the White House um, when Theodore Roosevelt was president. And so he was somebody she looked up to, that she wanted his endorsement for her product. But he was very ambivalent about cosmetics and about women sort of putting on airs and, you know, gussying themselves up. You know? And so... <laughs> He was somewhat dismissive of her, and she was not part of his inner circle. She was a self-made woman, not an educated woman. And so he didn't think he had to take her seriously, and he sort of lumped her in uh, with a group of, you know, charlatans, people who are selling you snake oil. But that wasn't what she was doing at all. And so she approached him. She asked, she wrote a letter asking him to invest in her company. And he wrote back this, you know, very kind of snarky letter of, oh, well, I just can't see my way forward on something like this. And so (laughs) then she visited his campus and um, she put kind of pushed herself forward and reluctantly his assistant allowed her to speak at chapel, but he still was keeping her at arm's length. And then she made a thousand dollar contribution to the YMCA, the black YMCA in Indianapolis. And he knew very much about that. And so now she's being written about in newspapers and there's a lot of coverage and attention to her. And he's still not feeling her, but she turns up at his 1912 National Negro Business League convention in Chicago. And she sends word that she wants to be on the program, even though, you know, when you're planning a conference, you've already, your lineup has been in place for weeks, if not months. She wasn't in the lineup, but she still thought she should be given a few minutes. And he ignored that request. So on the second day, another friend of hers says we should hear from her and Washington ignores that request. But on the third and final day of the conference, as the last banker is completing his remarks, Madam Walker stands up at her seat, looks toward Booker T. Washington at the podium and says, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. And I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, he invited her back as a keynote speaker. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 
just incredible. That just gives me chills hearing you say it too, because what a moment and what a woman, I mean, who knows her worth, right? And her value to her community. And we still see that now that women get such a small percentage of venture capital that you can say the same thing as a guy and it's not taken seriously. And there, you know, it's just stunning to me. My my 50th reunion from college is coming up and I'm on the planning committee and the the stories that we're all telling, we went, you know, we were in college in the early seventies, the doors were just starting to open up for women and med school and law school and law firms. And, you know, the, in communications and journalism where I worked and we still see things have really changed, but we still see that women still have some of the same babbles. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. You know, this is a fashion history podcast, so I'd be remiss not to inquire about Madam Walker's personal style. As I mentioned, we're so lucky that are, there are so many surviving photographs that confirm that she and her daughter were always at the height of fashion. What can you tell me about Madam Walker's material world of high fashion, luxury cars, and estates? You know, I, even when the very first picture that I have of her, I think she's probably in her 20s. At that point, she's still very much a poor washerwoman. But I can see even then she has a, a lovely brooch that she's wearing. 
her hair is is she's losing her hair because this is a before and after picture be, after she makes her hair grow. But you can see that she has tried to style it the best that she can. Uh, and then maybe five years uh, after she starts her company, there's a photograph of her and she's got that kind of Gibson girl look, the cinched waist, the side pose, the beautiful coiffed hair. So you can see that she's growing into this image that she's creating. And then I, the photographs that I have with her clothing, it's all, you know, women wore very dark clothes at the time, but you can tell that they're tailored, they're buttons. Her shoes are high buttoned and highly polished. And this was part of the inspiration when Carlisle Nuevo designed the Barbie doll that came out a couple of years ago. We, you know, just the little shoes with the buttons on the end. We tried to use what her favorite colors were, turquoise and purple and lavender. I know that she liked those colors because her stationery had those colors, but she was very conscious of fashion. I think because she had been a washerwoman, she had handled a lot of other people's clothes. She was an expert ironer. She knew how to, you know, make sure that the clothes looked beautiful. Even if she didn't have anything fancy, it was well cared for. And do you know, you mentioned multiple times throughout the book, and again, we'll talk about this more when we get to her daughter and her granddaughter, but do you know where she was shopping or who was making her clothes? Madam Walker and her daughter in New York shopped at Wanamaker's. So I know that was the case. I really don't know. Um, what a great question you have. You know, there, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of black women who were seamstresses, but at that the early part of her life, she could not have afforded a seamstress. Later on, she must have she must have had people make her clothes for her. But yeah, what a great question. <laughs> I had to ask. I had to ask. And then also, we just have to talk about because there's so many fabulous images. And I've talked about her on our history of driving fashion, because there's these fantastic images, multiple of them in her car. She's this modern woman, right? And she's driving her car, multiple cars. Uh, at the dawn of the 20th century. So uh, obviously, that's an expression of her wealth, but also of her modernity. Yes, yeah, she was definitely one of the first women to to own and drive a car. So the first one that I'm aware of is a Model T. And that's kind of the very famous photograph of her with three other women, her niece, her bookkeeper, and her uh, factory manager. And then she buys a Waverly electric car. Uh, and it is a kind of a coupe. Uh, and she's seated in this car, and that was considered the ladies' car. And she had that to sort of run about in the afternoons where her secretary told me they would <laughs> go on sightseeing trips or they'd go to the movies. And then she buys a cold touring car, which was kind of the finest uh, sedan that you could have during that period of time. And then we have to talk about the mansion that she built. Villa Luaro. And the Luaro is her daughter's name, Lelia Walker Robinson, who was her first husband. And it was named by Enrico Caruso, the opera tenor. Both women loved opera, and he visited the house when it was being built and said it reminded him of homes in Naples. So he christened it Villa Luaro. 
And I love this part in there because she you have a record of a letter and she says, tell Nettie she should see me now. I'm all dressed up in woman alls, the feminine for overalls, and I am a full-fledged farmerette. <laughs> you know, don't you? I mean, I love how she sees herself, uh, how she describes herself. And that is that consciousness of the image that she has. And it's also kind of a reference to what her life was like early on. Uh, when she was working in the fields in Delta, Louisiana, when she was picking cotton and growing vegetables. That whole idea of beauty culture is agriculture. Because, and she says, I know how to grow hair as well as I know how to grow vegetables. So there is this very integral part of her that is connected to the soil, that's connected to farming. And she loves being able to grow things. She loves her garden. She loves flowers. But I love that about her too, right? Um, as you just mentioned. So she never really loses sight of her roots, right? And I think that informs that informs everything she does, um, and including her incredible philanthropy, which you've mentioned multiple times, because really part and parcel to her success from very early on is her understanding of the importance of community support and those relationships. And she networks and builds communities, as you spoke to, everywhere she goes. She taps into Black religious, social, and political networks. She befriends and earns the respect of the most powerful and influential movers and shakers in the Black community, wherever she goes. Can you talk about why this was so important to her and how she navigated the world of both politics and philanthropy throughout her life, because she really, in in many ways, never kind of chooses a political side. You know, just as we see now, there are lots of political views uh, throughout America in all communities. And among African-Americans, there were people who were more conservative and more traditional, like Booker T. Washington, people who were more militant and more radical, like W.E.B. Du Bois and A. Philip Randolph and Marcus Garvey. And she navigated relationships with all of them, where some people felt that they had to pick a side. And she was that, I'm not picking a side. If anybody is doing anything that helps African-Americans, I'm going to find the thing that I can relate to. Because what she had that many other people didn't have was economic independence. And so she could kind of dictate the terms of the relationships. But as she was making her way, she had had to navigate that and she'd had to figure out who she could get along with and who was fitting into into her program. And she became she was very good friends with Ida B. Wells Barnett. And Ida B. Wells was one of the most militant, most outspoken women. She was much more educated. She had traveled internationally, but she could see that that Madam Walker was doing so much for women and she wanted to be supportive of that. You know, Ida B. Wells didn't get along with a lot of other people, but she was very powerful and made a difference and is an enduring uh, figure in the pantheon of of women and African-American activists. Yeah, and you incorporate a lot of that broader context within the story in terms of the anti-lynching campaigns um, and a lot of those things that are happening at this time. And there's a lot going on at this time, right? We're talking like the World War One era. You talk about the 1917 silent march parade and why you might not have 
direct evidence that Madam C.J. Walker was there, she most certainly would have been, right? Because she's part and parcel to all of these conversations. I thought it was just incredible that image in there of her sitting with the Japanese delegates for the Paris conference at the Treaty of Versailles being drafted out in the aftermath of World War One. And she's meeting with these people because they're trying to get, you know, bring the quote unquote race question to this to this conference. So she is very much front and center in a lot of these really pivotal and important political events happening at this time. Yeah, she really did see herself as being able to bring people together to be able to be a catalyst. And some of it came from knowing these as she traveled around all of these women who would come out to see her. She felt that she had a platform and she wanted to use that platform. You know, I don't know if she, in some ways, it's like she had become, she was such a meteor in such a short period of time. She had developed this business. She had begun to feel the power that she had, but she wanted to use that power for good. And I think during those last three years of her life, especially her health was so fragile that she was trying to use that platform as quickly as she could. And one of the ways she does that, and you already mentioned it, is her Madam C.J. Walker's National Association of Hair Growers. So by 1916, when she joins her daughter in New York, she has 10,000 agents selling her products in the U.S. and the Caribbean because she's expanded beyond the U.S. Um, She's being lauded as the best-known hair culturist in America, And one that is incredibly socially and politically conscious, as you already mentioned, in terms of wanting to instill that as well into her agents. Can you talk about the significance of her association, which you write is one of the first national conventions strictly devoted to American women's entrepreneurial pursuits, which is just remarkable. When Madam Walker gathered her agents together in 1917 in Philadelphia, it really had to have been one of the first groupings of women entrepreneurs. There may have been others before that, but I know that this had to have been one of the first. And she was bringing those women together, you know, both to teach them best practices, but she was also bringing them together so they could see their power as a group, that they were stronger when they collaborated, when they were together. And that was something that at the end of the convention, they used that power and that influence to send a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson to urge him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. Now, some of this activity made made her attorney very nervous because she was being politically radical. In fact, she was spied upon by a, a Black spy who worked for the War Department because she was so outspoken uh, about civil rights and about the rights of Black soldiers. But she knew that her power had come from other women, from the women in her community. And she thought, I can't just, you know, enjoy the cars and the furs and all of those things just for myself. I need to use this platform for something good. And you mentioned Madam Walker being sick for a couple of years, and her life was cut tragically short. She died far too young of kidney failure at the age of 51, and that was in 1919. Can you talk about what happened to her business in the wake of her death? And also, what was her significance at the time she died? And how has that evolved today? When Madam Walker died in May of 1919, she had one of the largest Black businesses in America. 
It was also around the time that Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein were starting. Now, they became bigger, uh, but at the time, they were about the same as they were developing their businesses. And the company continued. Alelia Walker became the president, but it was really the Mr. Ransom, the attorney in Indianapolis, and Alice Kelly, the manager of the factory, who were running the day-to-day operation. Alelia Walker was operating in New York. And the company had ups and downs through the years. It still remained a key player among Black hair care companies. It began to decline in the 50s when there were new companies like Johnson Products and Summit Labs that my dad was president of. My parents were like technically competitors. But (laughs) a new way of doing chemical hair straighteners challenged it. And so they, you know, it's like they were disrupted in the same way that newspapers have been disrupted by the internet. But the company actually never went out of business. My family and the Ransom family were involved with the company through the 80s. The trademark was sold to another company that owned it for about 30 years, but was not a major player. And then in the early 2000s, the trademark was sold to Richelieu Dennis, who was the founding president with his family of Sundial Brands. And he we together introduced a new line of Walker products that were at Sephora for a couple of years. Rich sold Sundial to Unilever, and we have worked on another product, Madam, through through Unilever. It's a very crowded space, <laughs> the hair care product. Right. <laughs> so I'm glad that the brand, even if they're not products, you know, just on the shelf, the brand is still so strong to be able to have had a Barbie two years ago that's one of the biggest sellers, to have Madam Walker's uh, you know, little tins included in an American Girl suitcase for Cloudy, one of the newest characters in American Girl, to know that there are awards named after Madam Walker, the Personal Care Products Council, the Society of Cosmetics Chemists, National Coalition of 100 Black Women, that Madam Walker's name and what she represents is enduring. Right. And of course, the booming cosmetics industry, right? I mean, she is one of the pioneers of that industry in so many ways, which is just remarkable. She still she inspires so many of these great success stories that I see. There are so many women you know, whether they're CEOs of cosmetics companies or other things where they're working in the hair care and cosmetics industry, who will often say that Madam Walker is an inspiration. And that means quite a bit to me. Well, thank you so much for sharing her story with us today. Totally my pleasure. And I can't let you go just yet, though, because I happen to know you are working on a book about Madam Walker's daughter, your great grandmother, Alilia Walker, a fascinating figure in her own right, who was an important and very fashionable figure of the 1920s Harlem Renaissance. So I'm hoping that you can tell us more about her, uh, the woman that Langston Hughes called the joy goddess of Harlem's 1920s, starting perhaps with how she first developed her relationship to fashion. So Alelia Walker, Madam Walker's daughter, absolutely was a fashionista. And her mother wanted her to be cute when she went to school. And so she made sure that as a washerwoman, even if she didn't have anything expensive, it was, you know, well ironed and well put together. And she was very tall 
for a woman during that time and had, you know, just people would describe her as royal and, and empress. And, you know, she was down to earth, but she also was, you know, a big woman who carried herself with great dignity. Uh, so she was a great dancer. She had, you know, nice, you know, steps. And so she was really, she knew how to to wear her clothes, how to carry herself. And I do know that there were Black seamstresses who made her clothes for her because she was so tall, she had to have things custom made. She complained about her feet, and so she had handmade shoes. When my grandmother got married in 1923, all of the the fabric had come from Paris. She had the, you know, everything was custom made for the bridesmaids. So she very much cared about fashion. She would she was in fashion shows. She sponsored fashion shows. So she was very much a person who set the tone with fashion. I read an article that you wrote on her where you write her closet was filled with Parisian haute couture as well as ensembles designed by African-American modistes. Do you know anything about the Parisian coutures or any of those modistes by name by chance? So she met Paul Poiret, you know, one of the most famous people who who designed clothes. When she visited Paris, um, she met him. She was she went to his studio when he came to the United States. He uh, came to one of her parties, and there's another person who is describing that she's wearing a Poiret. I don't have anything that I know is made by him, but I do have photographs and a couple of outfits that look like they could be his. Now, you know, none of the Poiret historians have, you know, will validate that for me. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm sure you've piqued the interest of many fashion historians such as myself, wondering about what those dresses look like. (laughs) (laughs) I know that his style worked for her as a very tall woman. The hats for my grandmother's wedding in 1923, the headpieces, were designed by Mildred Blount. And Mildred Blount is famous because she did the hats for Gone with the Wind. And she said that Alelia Walker uh, was one of her first commissions to make hats. So she was always very conscious of employing African-American seamstresses and modistes. Before you go, can you just briefly tell us about Alilia's salon of the 1920s? Because she hosted one of the most exciting salons of that era with a lot of the luminaries that we're all familiar with. And maybe that'll be a little preview for when you come back after your book's published, I hope, (laughs) to tell us more about it. (laughs) Absolutely. The new book is Joy Goddess, Alilia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance. And I talk about her relationship with her mother, how She's trying to have her own thing, you know, which is very hard to do when you have a larger than life mom. And one of the things that bonded them was music and theater. They both loved those things. And so as Alelia Walker is carving her own path after her mother's death, she is surrounded by musicians and artists and writers. And she decides that she is going to create a welcoming place for them. And so she converts a floor of her townhouse on 136th Street into what she calls the Dark Tower, which is a place where musicians and artists and writers and actors can come to hang out. So it is a, it, it what became an iconic place where everyone wanted to be. They wanted to say they'd been. I, years later, as I was interviewing people who had lived in New York or visited New York in the 20s, they, they would say, oh, 
We went to Alelia Walker's Dark Tower. It was still so magical and just so enchanting for people. Well, I'm very excited to read your book, as I'm sure our dress listeners are as well. They're definitely going to go out and buy your book on her own ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, if they have not already read it. Lilia, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And they can also listen on Audible. Oh, perfect. <laughs> they can multitask. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. I love what you're doing. And it's just, you know, fashion... You know, sometimes people think fashion is frivolous. You know it's not. It really is symbolic and it tells a story and it's got power and all of those things. So it's so important to understand what people meant when they were wearing something. Yes. And of course, cosmetics, hair, right? All of that is part of getting dressed. So Madam C.J. Walker is a testament to the power and importance of fashion. So thank you so much for sharing her life and legacy here with us today. Thank you. What a remarkable story, Cass, and what a remarkable feat of research. Um, You know, just kind of going back to what she said about doing research in the pre-digitization era, uh, this book was definitely the result of an incredible amount of very deep research and work. Yeah, and today we have it so easy in many ways, thanks to this mass digitization of sources that would have been unimaginable, as you know, April, just 15 to 20 years ago. Even when I was in grad school in 2010, 2011, I remember doing research for this supermodel documentary entitled About Face, and I was sent to look on microfiche for the very first now infamous Brooke Shields Calvin Klein ad that was published in the New York Times. And now you just keyword search it in Procrest, right? And we're really part of a more recent generation of historians and researchers. And we owe so much to the historians before us who really put in years and years of extra labor to lay the foundations for our field. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of times those historians back in the day were looking specifically at artworks and then transcribing them into their books that they were publishing um, because they couldn't get to those other, you know, digital photographs of things. So it's pretty amazing. There is a lot of incredible hard work and invisible labor that goes into the books that we all read. Sometimes these takes years and years and years and maybe even decades of work. So Thank you again, Alilia, for your incredible work to bring your great-great-grandmother's life and legacy to light for all of us. Dress listeners, we hope that you will get your hands on a copy of her book, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, and be sure to check out the website dedicated to both Madam Walker and Alilia Walker's lives and legacies. That is located at madamcjwalker.com. And of course, we will put a link to this in our show notes. And we wanted to share that our friends at Fashion and Race Database have declared this month, in addition to being Black History Month, Black Fashion History Month. And they have an incredible roster of virtual events, including talks by Elizabeth Way on Anne Lowe, Camille Lawrence of the Black Beauty Archive, and Charmaine Gooden of the Black Fashion Canada Database, which you are not going to want to miss. So check out the link in our bio to sign up. And dress Black Fashion History Month celebrations do not end here. Alilia only briefly mentioned the star milliner, Mildred Blount, who we should all know, but don't. And that is why we are going to rectify that situation on Thursday's episode. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the incredible history and people responsible for the makings of your beauty, skin, and hair care routines next time you get dressed. 
We love hearing from you, so please email us at hello at dressedhistory.com. Dressedhistory.com is also our website where you can find information on our upcoming fashion history tours, classes, and anything else we have up our sleeves. April's class of the first in the Great Designer series is now open for registrations, so head on over there and check that out, April. So exciting. And you've also already conducted your first Fashion History Friday at the Met. Yes. I don't know if you want to tell people a little bit more about that, but that went very well. It went very well. Yes. Thank you for mentioning it. Um, We have upcoming dates available. Um, If you would like to join us at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City on Friday, March 1st and Friday, March 15th so far. So uh, those are at 6.30 p.m. And we explore basically 5,000 years of fashion history as seen in the Met's permanent collection. We look at 10 to 11 um, specific works. It's super fun. Come join us. Grab a date. Uh, The Met is open late on Fridays. So... Yes. And I also happen to know that you will do private tours by request. There Mm -hmm. is a birthday coming up for someone. So just keep that in mind, Dress listeners. This is such an exciting new offering from Dress. And we're so excited about it. And we hope you join April in NYC. Yes. And of course, if you cannot, or if you just want to say hello to us, you can direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images and a reels accompanying each week's episode. If you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed three, four, five. That's dressed and the numbers three, four, five. And remember, you can always find an array of our favorite and podcast featured fashion history titles on our dress bookshelf through bookshop.org. You can find a link to our bookshelf and our show notes, as well as a link to sign up for the ad free version of the show for just $3 a month. You can subscribe to our exclusive content for $3 a month. And that is the ad free version. As always, thank you so much for your support. More Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.